You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Current standards. I'm talking about. I'm talking about the future. <laughs> Everything will always be better in the future. Yes. Maybe. Uh, so, hey guys, are we starting the show? Because we can. I think. You know, I don't know if we want to dive into automatic emergency braking right away. That might I, be a little deep start. But I'll know, let you I'm, determine that. I, I'm thinking that's what we're gonna do. So this is episode. Fifty five zero. They said it couldn't happen. They said no one would listen, but they're wrong. The three of us listen. Two out of three of us listen. Okay. My sister listens. My sister listens every time. <laughs> so okay, there you go. Uh, this is episode fifty. This is uh, amazing, and I, and you know we we said this after the show last week, and Michael's like fifty. Who cares? That's just some nonsense. Wait for the full year. So two more weeks will be one full year of episodes. <gasps> Ooh. Thanks, listeners, for being with us. And thanks for telling your friends, your families, and more most importantly, thanks for donating. Because that's going much better than I expected. Not as good as it should be, though. But I want to celebrate those who have donated. And I want to prod those who still want to. Hey, I've got a grizzly bear story. Uh, you know, if we can use that to pump a few more subscriptions. All right. We're going to have to review your grizzly bear story after we record to make sure it's family friendly. Okay. Not like your drugs stories. Yes. Stock stories. Okay. So I have to do a statute of limitations check on everything Fred wants to talk about. <laughs> yeah. All of his felonies. And who knows what he did with a bear and, you know, PETA could get involved. But hey, let's forget that acronym. Let's go to a different acronym. AEB. Yeah, we're going to dive deep into automatic emergency braking. And uh, for those of you who haven't paid attention, this is one of the first acronyms we covered way back in week. Um, and this is, it's been around a while. Um, a lot of more modern cars have this. And this is a radar system that will say, hey, you're getting too close to the object in front of you and automatically apply the brakes for you. Great idea. Amazing. I did a little research this morning to the history of it. And did you guys know when was this invented? Come on. I got to say in the 90s. And Fred? I'm going to guess it was in the 60s. And World War II, a man named George Rashid invented and patented the first radar-controlled braking system for automated vehicles um, to reduce the number of accidents caused by foggy weather. And in fact, in the 1959 Cadillac Cyclone concept car had it. I mean, it was a concept car that never made it. And the, the Cadillac Cyclone, it looks like something that uh, Flash Gordon would drive. Super cool. Super deadly looking. Um, but this has been going on for a while. And um, really, as Michael did point out, it started getting rolled out into higher end vehicles in the 90s. But really, it was in the 2000s. Um, where it really took off, especially the, the 20 teens where it's coming out. And, um, and in the Center for Auto Safety, we've been pushing NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Slowpoke Administration, to make this mandatory on cars, like had been done with airbags and seatbelts and things like that. And now Michael will go into a deep dive on 
a new rule from NHTSA on their requiring it's not a new rule. He made a face when I said the word rule and now he's licking his lips like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get into this. We really should make this a video about uh, how uh, they are now going to be requiring automatic emergency braking on cars. Michael. So this is something that's announced last week. It is a proposed rule, not a rule. Oh. So uh, as part of the administrative process, I won't bore everyone with this too much. And it's a, uh, you know, gets all its research aligned and then proposes a rule that's going to be commented on by the public, by automakers, any stakeholders, and then they're going to decide what's going into the final rule. So um, in the proposed rule, it, it's you know it's great that NHTSA is getting out a rule on automatic emergency braking, and there are some parts of it that are awesome. Some things that you know were, we were I was a little surprised that you know they did as well in some parts as they did, but there are other parts that are still somewhat problematic. So you know, for the listener's perspective, basically this rule is covering a, a few areas. You know, forward collision warning is something that you might also have, which beeps. Uh, or provides a haptic warning. There are a, a number of different formulations of it because there hasn't been a regulation yet. Um, to the driver, when you're approaching a vehicle, um, you probably have this go off once or twice a year when, uh, you know, in a number of different conditions, you have to make a quick stop or something like that. Sometimes the vehicle will actually sense the car in front of you before you do and start to brake, which is great. Um we also are covering automatic emergency braking. NHTSA is covering automatic emergency braking in this rule, which is functionally you're preventing a rear crash vehicle to vehicle. Um, NHTSA doesn't appear to be requiring any offset type tests that would test multiple different rear collision scenarios. It's basically a, a vehicle going directly in the back of another. Um, and then pedestrian automatic emergency braking is the third category so let me ask about the, the rear yeah. thing so is it my car so right now my car has the forward facing radar emergency braking is it also going to have a rear facing one no it prevents rear collision so it's preventing the trailing vehicle from running into the rear of the car, the car in front okay right right um and so you know it's I, we <laughs> In 2015 and 16, when they were coming coming up with this voluntary agreement to start getting AAB into vehicles, that's the, the AAB that was required, uh, and I think we've talked about this before, is like a kindergarten level AAB. It's very, it, it would work at very low speeds, not the kind of speeds where we see the majority of fatalities. It would... Um, it didn't have any type of pedestrian automatic emergency braking in it at all at that point. And it, it wasn't good enough. Um, we petitioned NHTSA to put a regulation in in 2016. Um, they kind of ignored our petition, so we took them to court. We got kicked out of court because it, it's really hard to force an agency to write a rule that it doesn't want to. There's a lot of deference paid to agencies by the courts. Um, so they finally gotten around to it. They basically took four years off during the previous administration on the rule. Finally, have gotten around to it under this one. And they've bumped the speeds up from what were about 25 miles per hour to, 
uh, 62 miles per hour with manual braking applied and 50 miles per hour without manual braking applied. Um, so those are much higher speeds and represent the speeds at which we do see a lot of crashes and fatalities. Obviously, um, we want that to see that continue to go up as high as possible. And, and, and NHTSA said something similar. You know, they said that the data demonstrate that the safety need for AEB systems to activate should be set as high of a speed as can practical practically be achieved. So, you know, they're, that's great. Um, one of the problems here is when we've seen the development of this rule, it takes many, 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 many years for these rulemakings to occur and for minimum standard to be put in place on vehicles. And looking at this rule, you know, it's, it's not going to take effect until next year sometime when they get it completed. Um, hopefully uh, they get it completed next year. And then there's another, I believe four years compliance period in which manufacturers have the opportunity to build up to the next level. So that's 20, it's going to be somewhere around 2029 when we finally start to see these vehicles come out. And in the interim, there's still no minimum standards for what's going into your vehicles. And it's every manufacturer has their own system. They're, they work at different speeds. Their pedestrian AAB works at different levels of effectiveness in night and day. Um, we recommend that buyers, you know, take a look at the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety's ratings there because NHTSA hasn't gotten it together on crash avoidance ratings yet to, to figure out, you know, w which vehicles perform best um, in both AEB and pedestrian scenarios. So that's kind of a general look at where we are. And, and um, it's, you know, some of the good things were pedestrian AEB was not not a requirement that Congress put in the Infrastructure Act. Um, and it says done that of its own volition. Um, and we strongly support that. Uh, there's a huge pedestrian fatality crisis that's ongoing. And as we've talked about uh, too many times, their vehicles are getting heavier and batteries are being thrown into them and making them even heavier. And that translates into more pedestrian deaths and into you know it's 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 a crisis frankly at this point um and pedestrian aeb can play a major role in solving that um we'd michael, like to let me let me jump yep. in here for just a second michael uh i i want to explain to our listeners why this is needed you've all seen on tv by now ads for cars where they're touting their automatic emergency braking they show a, a witless pedestrian walking in front of a car and the owner of the car is surprised that the car stops and all is well. But it's not a requirement. It's something that, as Michael has said, is the Wild West and people can do whatever they want. Actually, if you look on page 128 of the, uh, the notice, <laughs> there's a great rationale for why this is required. And, and it says, quoting, as an example, the owner's manual of V5, Vehicle 5, shows the TAEB, Pedestrian Automatic Emergency Braking System, working from 5 kilometers per hour or 3 miles per hour up to 120 kilometers per hour, 75 miles per hour. But what, <clears throat> excuse me, but when tested, V5 failed to avoid collision on all trials at 16 kilometers per hour. This points out that the, the standards that companies are using are 
meaningless. And they can mean whatever they want them to mean. And the company may have had a test that passed, but there's nothing in the independent test conducted by NHTSA that says that the system worked at all, despite what the company may have been advertising. Unfortunately, they don't identify which vehicle is vehicle five. Uh, they are agnostic about ownership of the vehicles, the manufacture of the vehicles. But this is clearly a case of false representation by the manufacturer to use a critical safety system as a means of promoting their own vehicle, even though it doesn't have the capability that's needed to actually protect anybody. So, Michael, back to you. I'm going to jump in. So a simple thing on this then is, so my car claims it has pedestrian automatic emergency braking. I've not wanted to try it out. Um, the alarm system will go off at times when a certain driver in my household, uh, drives comes off all the time. But so they claim that it works at different miles per hour and, and it does different things, but without any sort of regulation, there's no way for the government to say, Hey, this is actually happening. Is that, that that's correct. That's absolutely correct. And consequently, because there's no standard by the government, there's no mechanism for the government to have a recall against the standard if the vehicle doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It would be so it wouldn't be NHTSA or the DOT or anyone with automobiles doing this. This would be more of like false advertising. Essentially. That's correct. That's exactly right. And your only recourse as a consumer would be to go to the courts. Isn't that right, Michael? You're the you're the legal man. Yep, false advertising. That's what it would be. And and that's a <laughs> And good luck. I mean, with that. Uh, well, it's tough because the manufacturer would say, oh, well, we did this test and it showed that's what it showed. Um, yeah, not mentioning that that test was specifically designed to, to help that. Um, right. And what consumer is going to go down that road and try and have all of that money to prove that? Whereas That's a losing proposition, I think. Yeah. yeah. And that's okay. the problem. There's no way to hold them to account. And that's why we need the FTC to be a lot more active when manufacturers are falsely advertising the capabilities of vehicles. Tesla, Tesla, Tesla. <laughs> Um, it's just, it's obnoxious to me that the FTC hasn't gotten more involved there. So that's their job. Are there any technical limitations of why they have kind of these seemingly arbitrary miles per hour of, Hey, this thing works this speed, but above 25 miles per hour, eh, we turn off the safety system. Like they don't do that with airbags, like or seatbelts. Hey. Oh, it's not. I don't think it's turning off. It's just that, um, at those miles per hour, that's basically the technological limitations for, you know, every company has different technology. So some who have been slow to the game and haven't really put a lot of research into it might barely be complying with the 25 mile per hour standard in the voluntary agreement. They can continue to do that for another five to six years until this compliance um, date comes into effect, which well, means we're not. Things, okay. Sorry. Yeah. One of the things NHTSA has done that with this notice, which I think is very good is that, They've noted that there's a wide disparity among the various manufacturers and what these systems can do. In every case that I've noticed, they're using the best possible technology that anybody has demonstrated yet as the basis for the rule that they're saying everybody, all the others must conform to within a period of a few years. So they're not setting the bar as low as possible. They're setting the bar as high as is practicable given current given current technology. The prop a problem associated with that is they never projected to say they have never projected to say what is reasonable to assume the companies could do a few years ahead of time. 
What they're saying right. is that the best technology that's available now is what everybody will need to conform with in a few years. Hopefully, the manufacturers will continue to improve the technology, higher bandwidth, uh, sensors, better revisit times, all those kind of technical things that go into both the radar and the cameras that are used for data fusion supporting the PAEB in particular. Another shortcoming of the standard, I'm sure Michael is getting to it, but I'll just jump in, is that they're not considering motorcycles, they're not considering wheelchairs, they're not considering bicycles, they're not considering a lot of the apparatus that are common on roads now as part of the as part of the basis. What they're saying is there's no consistent test data that they've been able to come up with and no consistent protocols they've been able to use to establish what those standards are. But it is a shortcoming of the proposed rule that, that really needs to be addressed. Wait, I'm I'm lost now. So I, I assumed automatic emergency braking, it doesn't care what's in front of it, whether it's another car or a pedestrian or a wall. As long as that radar signal, when it comes back, it's like, hey, there's some sort of object here. Shouldn't it engage? Like, why is it saying like, that's not a car? Let's, I don't. I don't think it's, I, I, I wouldn't say that automatic emergency braking is doing that. I mean, it's going to sense, uh, depending on the company. See, this is one of the problems here. We have no idea what all the different capabilities are. There are many different systems used. Some of them are going to sense walls. Some of them are going to sense deer. Some of them are, are, are really awesome. Um, and can do a lot and have, but they're, but they're probably the most expensive right now. Um, that's, you know, one thing that's to put in here that is, that's really good. Um, that is, that is significantly different from the, the voluntary agreement, which only required vehicles to slow down a certain amount. And it's is um, requiring vehicles to completely avoid the object that's detected. So that's collision avoidance, um, which is, great because in the previous scenario you would see um, systems that only slow down a certain amount prior to collision which obviously can still result in injuries and deaths and now complete avoidance is the standard so um, they certainly deserve props for putting that in a standard versus the other so fred do you have any idea of the cost of these radar sensors because i know lidar the laser sensing system those are expensive but radar has been around for you know a very long time is a radar sensor that expensive or is this auto companies being like we don't want to spend an extra nickel they're more than a nickel <clears throat> i think the i think they are in high production i think the of the order of a hundred dollars a piece um uh, uh, but it's not necessarily so that the system has to rely on a radar some sure. of the systems use cameras rather than radars the best systems use both cameras and radars. Uh, they may also use ultrasonic sensors. There's a lot of data fusion capability that is is available to them. But I think the total total cost of the best systems is probably of the order of $100 or so in parts. Then, of course, there's the non-recurring cost of integration and calibration and all that stuff. But that gets amortized over the entire production run. So the, recur so the recurring cost is of the order of $100 a hundred dollars or so i would i would estimate i don't have proprietary numbers from the manufacturers to support that but that's that's right. my best guess and i think it it varies depending on the speeds they're trying to do some of the manufacturers that are really pursuing the high speed a automatic emergency braking 
are probably using technology that's going to cost more than that. Um, what one of the interesting things here in pedestrian on the pedestrian side, the, the testing that NHTSA did showed that pedestrian automatic emergency braking at this point basically isn't working over 40 miles per hour. Um, so there's certainly a lot of improvement there. I mean, there, there's obviously a reason they can bump the AEB up to 62 and 50 miles per hour and have to keep the pedestrian low because you have a smaller object you're trying to detect and moving in a different way and manner. Um, but that's, you know, that, that just shows you how much room there is for improvement in this rule. I mean, pedestrians are basically not going to be protected from speeding vehicles. Um, so that's a problem. Um, another issue that we still have questions about are, you know, there's a 6.2 minimum requirement, um, before these systems can activate. And, you know, I think miles per hour, 6.2. <clears throat> Right. right, which is yeah, 10 miles per hour. So, no, you just look at the miles per hour part. Just right. Like, right. 10 kilometers so, per second, 6.2 miles per hour. We okay. wonder, oh, you know, is me. that going to 10 kilometers happen per if, hour? Excuse <laughs> me. Yeah. We were hoping that that would, that, you know, AEB, the pedestrian AEB might protect, you know, children in driveways and front over and the type of things we've seen where I don't know that the vehicle, um, would would that the automatic the pedestrian automatic emergency braking would necessarily kick in before a collision um where the child is you know directly in front of the vehicle and the vehicle is accelerating um it doesn't sound like it will protect um in that scenario and so that's um a problem if, if you know if we're not going to mandate 360 degree cameras better visibility in in giant vehicles with hoods that that hide a portion of the field of view then we need to put something else in to help that we thought pedestrian automatic emergency braking might be that thing but i'm concerned that it's not going to be well michael doesn't the rule uh proposed rule also include a provision for uh, vehicle design within an end cap that does do the pedestrian protection, at least in, you know, at, at least in the, with respect to the hood and the visibility yeah. in the front. That's similar to what's, um, what Europe is doing for years. And something we pointed out a number of times about vehicle, um, and pedestrian crash worthiness where, um, designing vehicles to protect pedestrians in the event of a collision with, um, better hoods and, you know, other structural changes that could um, really help. This is a rule that NETS has had sitting in its regulatory agenda for a number of years and not done anything on. I know that's surprising to our listeners, but it's, you know, it's really needed. And I thought that, you know, that's on my good list. Um, I, I, we really want a vehicle hood rule or something that can, you know, end a lot of the trauma we see to pedestrians when they're struck by vehicles with really high hoods that are designed for anything but pedestrian mm-hmm. protections. I stood in front of a new Ford pickup a couple of days ago, and I was surprised to find that the top of the hood was at my eye level, and I'm over six feet tall. So uh, God. I was staring eye to eye across the top of the hood right into the dashboard of the car. It was, it's amazingly huge. These things are just enormous. That's absurd. Because I'm enormous. And so we were, <laughs> we were peers. That's good. You guys um, have a cup of coffee see. or something? So, so, <laughs> so all right. One about- more thing I wanted to make sure I mentioned that yeah. was good was 
um, and something we've talked about before as well and supported the Insurance Institute's petition on this was they're, they're making sure they do pedestrian automatic emergency braking testing in a number of lighting conditions since we've seen right. so many problems with that at night. Um, I mean, from just a basic standpoint, I don't trust vehicles that are only relying on cameras for this um, because they, you know, they, they're requiring a lot of things. They're requiring on headlights, illuminating pedestrians in order to see them. Um, I, I, I don't think that cameras only are ultimately going to be the solution here. And particularly for the higher speeds and detecting pedestrians that are a hundred yards out in front of the vehicle or more to avoid collisions. Uh, that's, really good that they're doing that um the insurance institute is also also testing vehicles already um for that kind of thing so you can find ratings on that at their website so a lot with um we've run into like phantom braking issues with uh a number of cars how is this is this addressed at all in this scenario i know there's something called what was it the trench plate test yeah and that's I, a that's a false activation requirement um, so, that they included. Now that's an option. There are a number of options presented there. So it's that's something we're going to find out when the final rule comes out. Which one they selected? There is a trench plate test. Um, what is and that? I it, it it looked like it was basically one of those steel trench plates you'll see that are covering uh, road construction or utility uh, construction. Um, and, and this trench plates and train tracks are one of the things that set off vehicles with cameras, or at least seem to based on, uh, our petition around Nissan rogues and, um, for the defect where those were phantom braking. Uh, so that's a test that can set off a false activation. I think my concern in using that as a test would be that it would allow manufacturers simply not to engage AEB when a trench plate is detected and pass the test. But if you have pedestrians walking over and around trench plates in cities, you don't want the AEB being, being disengaged. So I, you know, we, look, it's a 300 page document. I haven't delved deeply into that particular requirement, but that one just seemed iffy from the start. Um, there's a pass through test uh, and the third, I think the pass-through test on first read or second read is probably our favorite. The third test is robust documentation by manufacturers, which is sounds like a new word describing some sort of self-certification process that allows the manufacturers to meet a documentation standard in theory, but not actually put safe vehicles on the road. So we're not too big of a fan of that, I don't think. Um, so that's basically the phantom braking there's a kind of a cohort to that, which is the malfunction detection requirement. This is a system that would basically run tests on your automatic emergency braking system before you before you pull out of your driveway to determine whether or not there's debris, whether or not the software has been corrupted, whether your cameras are working, if the radar is performing a lot of different tests to ensure that it's performing so that false activation doesn't become a problem or the other problems with the system. So that's another area where we're looking for. It wasn't really clearly defined how the malfunction detection requirement was going to work. And it seems like they're putting in, you know, it's going to be only a warning. 
So you're going to be able to say, oh, my, my, my ABS or my AEB is malfunctioning. And instead of turning it off, it's going to allow you to continue to drive down the road, possibly have a phantom brake incident, possibly not have the use of your emergency braking capability. So um, I'm not sure how we feel about the warning. I don't, I think that, you know, if the AEB is not working and I think Fred will agree, you should turn off the system. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm not a fan of systems that don't work, particularly because, as pointed out in the standard itself, people tend to rely upon these uh, very heavily as they're driving down the road. And, you know, uh, as we've seen in some of the Tesla um, videos that have been available, People tend to hedge their bets on pedestrians walking across the road. And, you know, one guy celebrated the fact that his Tesla calculated the clearance between his vehicle and an oncoming pedestrian in the crosswalk. And the guy was elated that, in fact, the car sneaked by without killing the pedestrian, which is a good result. But if people are relying upon these automatic systems very heavily for safety and they are hedging their bets about proximity to pedestrians, that becomes even more important that if a built-in diagnostic routine determines the system is not working properly, that the operator is not able to go ahead with normal driving uh, practices, assuming that the system will be working. There's, there's got to be a way of backing off from that, making sure that people aren't relying on safety critical systems that simply do not work. We've brought this issue up in many of our discussions about other automatic safety mechanisms as well. Um, it's it's overlooked in the developmental standards being produced by industry groups for reasons that are not clear to me, I guess because it's just hard to do. But uh, people need to know if the systems are not working properly, if they're relying upon them for their or pedestrian safety. And related to that, um, NHTSA is proposing that, you know, folks can turn off this technology. I know you like to turn oh. your pedestrian automatic, automatic emergency braking off, Anthony. No. But I, I don't, you know, obviously some of the new crash avoidance features are things that drivers become annoyed with and want to turn off. Uh, lane keeping assist is one that I hear frequently from right. everyone I know, including my parents, that they want to turn it off. I love um, it. But I don't know. With automatic emergency braking, sometimes I wonder if providing that option, you know, is it, is going to result in a tragedy. Um, I think it probably will, uh, given the given the numbers of rear collisions we see every year. Um, to have that system, a driver selectable off switch for that system that, you know, the next buyer or someone else driving the car might not know is off. And, and, and I don't know, that's problematic for me. I know we like to give Americans free choice, but huh. in that matter, and, and, you know, even when it comes to s speed limiters and other things, giving drivers the ability to turn off those safety systems is something that i you know everybody seems to want to ride an autonomous vehicle that does everything for them nowadays but if you put them in a car where you're going to have some of the similar restrictions they scream that their freedoms are being taken away so i don't understand it but um i think if aeb was mandatory i, I would be willing to accept that in my vehicle yeah i want to remove aeb and remove the crumple zones from my car 
I want to go back to driving a steel tank. Uh, so this is just a proposed rule. And if everything goes smoothly, we're talking five years out um, for this to be mandatory. Right. Hey, and how do things like this get mandatory in five years out? There's a whole back and forth process where manufacturers say, we don't want to do that. And consumer advocate groups like the Center for Auto Safety with your donations will fight on the other hand and be like, hey, we want to save people's lives. So if you want to save people's lives, go to autosafety.org, click donate. If you're all for death, then, uh, you know, still give us money and we'll just do it ironically. That was very strange. Uh, okay. So we mentioned Tesla and. You know, and let's get a little lighthearted here because, oh boy, is Tesla funny. So Elon Musk, uh, he says he's open to licensing their autopilot software. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, hey, I'm, uh, that'd be like Microsoft saying, hey, we're opening, <laughs> open to licensing Windows 98. I mean, yeah, that might be a little harsh, but like, uh, gee, Elon, your stuff doesn't work and other people have come up with stuff that's better. And it works. And I don't see, you know, a GM, a Ford, a BMW, a Mercedes being like, hey, let's drop all the work we did into creating systems that are better and work reliably and replace it with stuff that's proven to not work well and is fairly outdated. Um, just me? Seems nuts. Uh, I mean, I think if <laughs> I think what's keeping GM and Ford away from taking on that type of thing, even though Ford and Tesla seem to have a budding bromance. I think that what's keeping them from doing that is that they look around and see how many active wrongful death and injury lawsuits Tesla is facing because of the, you know, basically the incapabilities of its technology, the bad marketing with which they rolled it out. And, you know, some of the basically false representations uh, they've been making about the technology since it's been in the car. I mean, they've been calling these things full self-driving for what, since 2016, 2017, autopilot was somewhere in there too. I mean, that all that is a lie. And, you know, people have relied on those representations and gotten themselves in a lot of trouble or killed. And uh, a lot of those people are suing Musk and Tesla and they're, you know, he keeps saying every year these things are going to be robo taxis, even though all they're using is cameras. Um, so I don't know. It's it's <laughs> it, every time I think about that situation, it's very frustrating because there hasn't been a lot of action. The rollout of that, that junk, and you know, it, it's scary when you when you think about tesla's licensing its faulty technology to other people um i i, I don't think gm and ford are going to bite on that but someone you know someone might lose like loose mother struggling ev company might so who knows well michael you said bad marketing but you know i this has got to be a a, a textbook case for good marketing because tesla has actually gotten people to pay extra money for the privilege of being test drivers of unproven technology. Typically in a company, you have to pay people to become test pilots. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, you know, I, I've got to, I've got to say it is brilliant marketing. Unethical, yes. Dangerous, yes. Um, probably a bad idea, yes, but brilliant marketing. So I, I, I differ with you on that, my friend. I agree. Fred is right. Michael is wrong. I'm still calling it bad marketing. It's <laughs> it's, a, it's amazing marketing. Um, 
General Motors CEO Mary Barra uh, says she doesn't see profitable electric cars in the 30,000 to 40,000 range until the end of the decade or even later, which is disappointing and bizarre considering that GM was selling um, and is still currently selling uh, their inventory of Chevy Bolt EVs, which started at like $26,000. And the reviews on the Chevy Bolt EVs were like, wow, Chevy made a really good car. Um, it's good. It's small. It's lightweight. It does what it says. And, and they're also coming out with a, a an Equinox EV that's going to start at like $30,000. But GM just wants to say, hey, let's just all, everyone just buy a Hummer. Okay. 9,000 pounds of pure death on wheels. Let's go. I, I, is this just, her trying to push the giant fat American SUV because there's more profit margin or is there something that I'm missing? I'm not missing anything. You know, I, 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 all I know about electric car for quite some time. I mean, they're, they're Let's try that again. Your internet connection cut out for a second. It's that all I know. And <laughs> all I know is that, that I won't be able to afford an electric ve vehicle for quite some time. I mean, these things appear to be rolling out in the form of massive SUVs and, you know, basically the, the kind of cars that average be able to afford. And what does that do? How does that help EVs, uh, you know, replace the, the vehicles on the road that we're driving now? I mean, most of the EVs I'm seeing are just big trucks that I don't like driving. I like a little zippy car to drive around in. Um, GM had the Bolt, and from what I can, she's saying that the Bolt was not profitable for them. Otherwise, it sounds like they'd still be producing it um, at those prices. So I, I, I'm having trouble rectifying that. They're basically they basically canceled their only mini sedan type V smallest EV is going to be the Equinox, which is not not a tiny car uh, going up to the Hummer, which is loaded over 10,000 pounds. So I don't think that's the EV fleet that, you know, the environmentalists wanted to see when they were pushing a, a lot of the, the electric vehicle things that the EPA and other folks have done. Listeners, we apologize for Michael's internet cutting in and out there. Um, but he also said he couldn't afford an EV uh, for the next decade, and he's got poor internet quality. Perhaps if you donated generously to the Center for Auto Safety, he could upgrade his internet, and then he could be driving around in a zippy little EV if anybody made a zippy little EV instead of a giant truck. Um, Anthony, that is a brilliant segue. <laughs> Thank and, you. And, and I've got to say, I have a zippy little EV. It's called an e-bike. It has a one kilowatt hour battery and it can go uh, 80 miles, which is, which is all anybody really needs. So, Michael, there you go. There's your zippy little affordable vehicle. And I think we're just going to, since we're talking about EVs and, and the world of EVs and Mr. Bean. Oh, wait, we didn't mention Mr. Bean yet. We're going to mention Mr. Bean. You guys, Rowan Atkinson. He had this great little article inside the Guardian. Um, it's some communist leftist rag out of the Europe, uh, talking about how EVs just not quite ready yet. Uh, and, uh, I think that's going to be the subject for today's Tao of Fred. Fred, are you ready? Here we go. You've now All entered right. the Tao of Tao Fred. Fred. Oh, look at that. Michael ran away. He's like, I can't handle this. All right. Tao of Fred. Let's talk EVs. Michael ran away because the, all of the liberal 
groupthink <laughs> that we love and cherish says that EVs are inherently a wonderful thing because they're going to save the world. Um, you know, there may be some truth in that, but the, the literature about it is very interesting. And Rowan Atkinson has purchased an EV and he says, ah, he's probably unlikely to do that again for a lot of good reasons. Um, he's a closet engineer, it turns out. He has a degree in electrical engineering. Yeah, it was surprising. Uh, yeah, I, I was certainly surprised. But um, he makes a lot of good points. One of them is that if you really want to save the world, buy a used car and keep your car for a long time. Because the amount of energy that goes into building a new car, particularly a new electric vehicle, is enormous. Um, he also points out that the marginal benefit of an electric vehicle is actually relatively small unless you happen to be in an area that is very heavily oriented towards renewable energy. Um, a lot of the EV advocates will say, well, look at Norway. 80% of the people in Norway are buying new cars that are EVs now. Well, that's true, but it's a very small market. And Norway is blessed with a lot of hydropower. I say blessed advisedly because that, of course, isn't a blessing to anadromous fish, which like to move upstream to breed. But whatever, if you put that particular ecological problem aside, or ecological catastrophe aside, then yeah, it, it burns less fuel as it runs. But even in a situation like that, the marginal benefit of an EV over a very long lifetime of 100,000 miles or so is maybe 20 or 30% compared to a, uh, a vehicle that is burning conventional gasoline. So there is that. And, uh, you know, the rebuttal to that. And by the way, I, I highly recommend the article. You can read it for free on The Guardian, theguardian.com. We have a link to it. Everybody should everybody should read that newspaper anyway. But it's uh, Rowan Atkinson. I love electric vehicles and was an early adopter, but increasingly I feel duped. So I, I may be alone in this liberal community by saying there's an awful lot of groupthink about EVs that you know, they are really good. And somehow that group thing has taken over a lot of legislation. And a lot of people are just saying, well, you know, this is pure benevolence. Um, in some sense, what you're doing is trading a strip mine in Minnesota that's producing iron for a, uh, a very dirty mine in the Congo that's producing cobalt. Um, so that, that's something to think about, too. And the rebuttal to this that was written in the Washington Post, I, uh, I think I have it on my phone here. I can't get pull it up on my, uh, on my grown-up computer, but there's a climate coach rebuttal in the Washington Post, and it's titled, uh, Mr. Bean says, Our honeymoon with electric cars is coming to an end. It's just the beginning. Well, that's the theme of that of the rebuttal that it's just the beginning and it's very interesting that like a lot of the ev information that you'll see it's a mixture of both current observations and also aspirational ideas about 
what the efficiency might become if only these things happen, if only there's an upgraded electrical system, if only there's an upgraded hydropower system, if only we continue the progress towards renewable energy in our electric grids, if only, if only, if only, if only, if only. Uh, this is the classic group thing. There are people have, are substituting their aspirational visions of the future for what is actually achievable and what will actually happen. The rebuttal rejects the idea of hydrogen fuel because in the current technology, you've got to have a gas station where you can go and get fuel, right? And so <laughs> if you don't have hydrogen in the gas station already, you've got to put pipelines in place, you've got to put distribution in place. All of that is true, but it neglects a couple of things. One is that if you had a vehicle built around a fuel cell rather than a vehicle built around a battery, then you can avoid the thermodynamic inefficiencies that are inherent in the electrical supply and distribution system and also in the internal combustion engine system and you can go to the much higher efficiency of the fuel cell system, which does not rely upon combustion. Now, you've got to drive it back a little bit more and say, well, okay, that's fine. But where does the hydrogen come from? The hydrogen is not a fuel. Hydrogen is like electricity. It's a vehicle because there's no hydrogen... There's no hydrogen mine in the world. You can't just tap into a hydrogen source somewhere. You've got to create it. And currently, the most economically attractive way of producing hydrogen is to get it from uh, fossil fuels. To, for example, change uh, ethane into ethene and strip the hydrogen from it. That's true. A more expensive way of getting it is to electrolyze water and to get the hydrogen off it and dump the, dump the oxygen as a waste material back into the atmosphere. That's probably not a bad idea to do some of that. But if you look at the overall distribution system and electric generation system, all of the uh, electric generating stations would rather run at 80% of full power all the time. So they don't have any thermal cycles. They don't have, uh, they don't have a lot of waste associated with it. They'd rather run at full time. So this excess power that could be economically produced could go into, for example, pumped hydro storage. People are doing that now. Charging batteries, well, that's one way of using it, but there's a lot of losses associated with batteries. You could also use it to hydrolyze hydrogen, or excuse me, hydrolyze water to create hydrogen and use that for a topping cycle in a gas turbine to help level out the load particularly in the distribution system where you've got wind turbines, where you've got photoelectric and the variability associated with that, if you use that excess power to generate hydrogen, which can then be burned very cleanly in a gas turbine to generate the what they call the topping power to make sure that you level out the, the load appropriate for the demand, you end up with a very efficient overall system. So, it's funny that the rebuttal would have so many aspirational ideas about what the car technology could be, but put aside all the aspirational ideas about what the alternative hydrogen economy might look like. Um, so it seems like most manufacturers, they were talking a lot about hydrogen fuel cells in automobiles in like the late 90s, early 2000s, and then every single one of them, with the exception of Toyota, 
have walked away from that completely. So there must be something there. And the, the, when we always have this conversation, I always have that aspirational view. And what we're just talking about is, okay, you have solar and wind, their excess power using pumped hydro for storage, which for listeners is basically you take a big pool of water and the excess energy, you pump it up a hill. When you need that again, you release it down that hill, runs through a turbine like a, um, like a dam, a hydroelectric dam, um, which is very, very cool for grid level storage and, and, and power back up. There's some other solutions with that too. So why, why not go more in that direction um, instead of going hydrogen? Well, it's a question of regulation really. And uh, there are a lot of technologies available for fuel cells that haven't been exploited largely because of the very heavy subsidies that are going into other kinds of technology like the, uh, the solar, the wind turbines, the particularly the uh, petroleum industry, which gets enormous subsidies. Right. Um, so, you know, again, that's aspirational to say that, well, if Congress only did the right thing, maybe everything would be better. Uh, hard to say, but all I'm saying is that it would be nice if the discussion about the various technologies the use of EVs, uh, the rebuttals to the use of EVs, would somehow converge around what actually is apparent in the world today, uh, rather than mixing what is evident today with what might be evident in the future. Um, anyway, getting back to the original article about uh, about EVs, he makes uh, Mr. Atkinson makes a lot of great points about how to save energy today, how to save money today by minimizing the use of EVs and maximizing the use of the car that you've already got or buying a used car to reduce the amount of energy that's being put into these vehicles that that we all use today. Um, I think it's a great article, great article and very surprising to see it from from the source. We all think of him as Mr. Bean, but he's a he's a very articulate and uh, intelligent guy. And praise be, he's an engineer at heart. We've got to love that. <laughs> He'll always be the black adder to me. So one of the most interesting parts of his article he's talked about, and this is UK centric, is that most people only own, own a car for three years. Like they have a new car and then they get rid of it after three years. Is that and it? I got the impression that this might be a UK specific thing, the way things are structured. What's that like in the US, Michael? Like the people just It's buy very similar. Leases are growing all the time. Um now I I just bought my Volkswagen this weekend after a four year lease. So I'm not falling into that right. pattern. I mine out of a three year lease. Um, and that's mainly because, you know, I won't be able to afford a hydrogen vehicle either when it comes. Um and you know that that's true there's more people who are getting rid of their vehicles quicker now those vehicles are they're not being trashed they're being sold to other folks so they're staying within the fleet um and and that's one of the points um i believe of you know people like me who complain that they can't afford an electric vehicle well the fact is electric vehicles are still being put out into the marketplace and they're going to be more affordable used down the road um and they're going to make up a continually larger part of the fleet. Um, 
in this context, I just don't think we should be excluding other technologies. Um, hydrogen sounds like it's one that could be great. My only concern there really is the pressurized hydrogen that is required to run it and making sure that those canisters or, or whatever cannot be punctured in a crash. Because oh, I, I trust I, the auto companies, they could make it. Yeah, um, I'm glad you do. <laughs> But that's um, that's really our, our only safety concern there, I believe, that, that yet. I mean, we haven't obviously seen them on the roads for, for any large period of time in, in larger fleets. Um, I think there's some fuel cell vehicles operating, you know, buses and transit in some areas, but where they have, you know, a dedicated hydrogen supply. But otherwise, you know, given that the Infrastructure Act has really prioritized electrification over everything, there's a long path for hydrogen to climb in America um, legislatively and and from an infrastructure perspective. Yeah, again, my aspirational view is the uh, the in the U.S. at least the entire electrical grid needs to be upgraded massively. Hey, while we're spending money on this and doing that and aiming for this EV future, if that helps put pressure. Great. And also everything being better in the future, as we've learned, the current batteries ideally being replaced with something better. Again, 100% aspirational. But, you know, I'm an optimist at heart. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we'll we'll see um, what's what's happening there. Should we uh, I think it's time to dive into some recalls. How do we feel about recalls? Strap in. I'm for the recall roundup. I, I like recalls generally. Okay. Well, I'm going to go into, you know, look, Tesla. <laughs> Tesla's apparently need steering wheels. Who knew? Uh, so, oh, wait, this is a very small number of recalls. This is it the is. 22 to 2023 Model Y vehicle. Um, is 137 vehicles. I get the impression that this is a Friday afternoon problem where an improperly torqued fastener allows the steering wheel to disconnect from the steering column. Um, that doesn't sound good. That sounds Friday afternoon. I have a friend whose son bought a Chinese moped. Okay. It had that same design feature, and he found himself driving through uh, College Park, Maryland, with no handlebars. Uh, <laughs> it didn't go well. Oh, was he okay? He was okay. The bushes were not. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's frightening. Um, next one we have is um, from Ford Motor Company. Now, here's a large number of vehicles, 142,000 plus uh, from built between August 20th, 2013 and August 2nd, 2019. This is for it's a wireless Lincolns. Yeah, this is the park outside warning that NHTSA just put out. And these are not uh, EVs that are catching on fire. These are gas powered vehicles catching on fire. Yes, they are. And the, the source of the fire here is odd because it's actually the battery monitor sensor, which I'm assuming is there to prevent the battery from catching on fire. They're, they get damaged when the battery or the wiring harness, I believe, around the battery are serviced. Um, that could be anytime you take your car in for service and they operate in that area. Um, that it, it, So basically, the battery monitor sensor is cracking, developing a short, and then that's going to cause an uh, electrical current overload, overheat material around it, and possible fire. So 
if you have a 2015 to 2019 Lincoln MKZ, make sure that you're not parking indoors uh, or near structures or other vehicles or children's playgrounds. So that's what we got for recalls. But before we go, I, I can't believe I skipped this story. Um, but this is one we have posted from Yahoo News. Driverless trucks on California highways, question mark. Legislators don't trust the DMV to ensure safety. Well, that's great when government doesn't trust itself. Uh, so California wants to put out, wants to start experimenting with driverless 18 wheelers. That sounds great. Oh, well, I mean, they're, you know, the, the, the Leave Aurora just announced they were going to operate between Houston and Texas. So oh. this isn't that far, you know, out. But I think the difference in California and Texas is going to be that a, California appears to be leaning towards requiring safety drivers, which is something we obviously support right now until, you know, we actually have evidence that these vehicles can operate safely without one. Um, and we don't. So. That's still on the table for now. Um, I there's don't a, think. Let, let, me, let me point out: there's a test track that's used by the truckers that goes from Los Angeles to Phoenix along I-10. It's a standard test track, if you will. It happens to be public highway, but they use it for testing out a lot of technologies on long on long haul trucks. And the one end of that, of course, is in California. So part of the impetus behind this is to have a clear path for the truckers to go all the way from Los Angeles to Phoenix and take advantage of their de facto test track for these self-driving vehicles. Right now, they cannot do it. They cannot extend into uh, into California because of the regulations. So digression, but go ahead, please. Sorry. So that I think that bill is still on the table. So it hasn't been passed yet, but I expect it might um, might be. But you know, I think we are in favor of safety drivers in every autonomous vehicle, ADS equipped vehicle, whatever you want to call them. There are multiple names um, because of the things like we saw in that uh, I believe it was Waymo in San Francisco that where it was unable to um interpret human commands given by police officers and flares uh you know those situations could potentially end badly and you know we've seen a number of situations where vehicles go into what we would say is a state of shock in some ways they don't know how to uh cope with their environment and they essentially freeze and they're blocking traffic, ambulances, fire trucks during the time in which they're freezing uh, for an engineer to come move them. So um, that's a problem. And we think safety drivers would ameliorate a lot of those issues we're seeing in cities that are dealing with this right now. I vote safety drivers until I have died. Then I don't care what happens. One, one detail and one analogy to throw in here is that the kinetic energy of a fully loaded over-the-road vehicle traveling a uh, truck, heavy truck at 70 miles an hour, is has kinetic energy about equal to the chemical energy of a Hellfire missile warhead. Uh, so you've seen some of these exploding in videos from various wars over the last decade or so. I just want to point out there's a lot of energy in these suckers, and, and it, it's really, uh, well, aspirational to say that I don't really care about all that energy. I'm just going to throw it on the road without a driver and everything is going to be okay. 
Boy, that's that's a lot. You know, usually you have a lot of control over that kind of energy. Let's get back to this highway being a test track. Are you just speaking euphemistically? No, I'm not. Uh, in the tire industry, that's a standard way of, of qualifying tires. They put them on trucks that go in between those those two points, Los Angeles and Phoenix. It's about 500 miles. And they just run the hell out of them to see if the new tire technology and the retread technology in particular is going to be suitable for, for highway use. Um, it's a great place to test them because hot. it's it's hot, it's straight, it's it's controllable. There's not a lot of diversions into other cities, so it's kind of a 500-mile-long drag strip, if you will. You've just summed up my online dating profile. A 500-mile drag strip? <laughs> no, it's never mind. Hey, with that, listeners, thanks so much for listening to episode 50. Oh, my word. We're old enough to buy beer, just not drink it while driving. Uh, thanks so much. Please tell all your friends. We'll be back next week with more exciting news. And next week, we'll talk about the Hyundai Ionic 5 brake flaw because um, I skipped it this week. So yeah, that's a mess. We'll talk about the Inspector General's report on NHTSA's really bad oh, Office shit. of Defects investigation as well. That was not a good report card. No, no. Hey, uh, I have a great digression into hydrogen. For next give, me a, give me a minute. Well, we can do okay. it next week or we can do it now. What, are, what would you like? For more information, visit www.autosafety.org. All right. So... There's a lot of misconception about hydrogen fuels, and Michael said you don't want to puncture the hydrogen tank if you have a fuel cell in the car. Of course, you don't want to do that, but you're much better off puncturing the hydrogen tank than you are puncturing a gasoline tank. And the reason is because the hydrogen dissipates very rapidly. People in their minds go back to the movies they've seen of the Hindenburg burning and say, yes. well, that's what hydrogen can do. That's a mixture. Yeah, you can't see hydrogen burning. Yeah, so all of the that's my, that's that, what scares me. Is you all can't of the see flames it. that, you, but it but it burns very <laughs> rapidly, so it's not going to be around long. Um, I think the, the potential for see, an explosion. All the flames that you see in the hydrogen uh, in the Hindenburg burning are associated with the fabric that covered the balloon and the the dope, which is a sealant material that was in the fabric. So people need to kind of move on from that. They don't explode unless they're confined in, you know, some kind of volume. So the, the hydrogen just burns. And if you think of a rocket that's going up into outer space with hydrogen fuel like the old Saturn V's, not a lot of smoke associated with that. There's a really bright spot, but, you know, off they go. So just wanted to digress right. a little bit about hydrogen chemistry. So you're telling me as a passenger, then I would basically be evaporated by a really quick hydrogen blowtorch. <laughs> mm, I don't know about that, but uh, better off than better off than gasoline. That's all I can say. It's a quick death. <laughs> if you like Perkins yeah. and you like hydrogen, tune into his other podcast, Element One with Fred Perkins. It's hydrogen is your friend. Yeah, it's the most abundant, ab most abundant podcast in the universe. Where would we be without hydrogen? We'd be nowhere. Hey, what was the Frank Zappa quote? They say the most abundant element in the universe is hydrogen. I say it's stupidity. End of digression. <laughs> I love Frank. All right, that's how I'm right. the stop button now. <laughs>